Who doesn't love a good movie? Oh, to be entertained for an hour or so by an action film, a rom-com, a sci-fi film, maybe even a thriller or a musical. But I would argue that where you watch your movie is almost just as important as what you're watching. If you're traditional, you might still enjoy the casual trip to the movie theater. Although movie theaters are anything but traditional anymore. I hear that you can actually order food and have it delivered to your seat. It's crazy. Or you might prefer to just watch a movie in the comfort of your home. With on-demand access, we have the ability to watch what's playing in the movie theaters in the comfort of our own homes. Watching movies is a national pastime. But what makes a good movie? Is it the actors or the actresses? Is it the studio and all of their special effects? I think deep down we all know that what makes a good movie is the story that's being shared. The key to a good movie lies in the ability of the director to tell through the actors and the production the story that the movie is trying to tell. The animated studios of Pixar have created some of the most innovative movies of our generation. Classics like Toy Story, Cars, Finding Nemo, Up, Monsters, Inc., are all great stories portrayed by the wonderful skill set of the animators of Pixar Studios. Their films have an incredible way of pulling at our heartstrings. Now, have you ever wondered what's the secret in their storytelling ability? Matthew Loon spent over 25 years in Pixar helping them write and develop stories for some of our favorite films by Pixar. And in his book, The Best Story Wins, wins, he goes on to share the secrets of their story writing. He shares that in order to have a good story, a story must contain three things. First, the story that you're trying to tell needs to be memorable. He goes on to explain that of all the information and interactions that we're faced with every day, we only remember about 5% after 10 minutes. Now, if our memories of what took place is around an event or an experience, 65% will be retained. It's fascinating. What's really more, what's more fascinating is that our average attention span is of eight seconds. So in order to tell a good story, we need to hook people early. We need to start talking about something that's unusual, introduce conflict right away, instead of waiting till the middle or the end. The second element that our story needs to have is that it needs to be impactful. This is where the power of our emotions comes into play. When our emotions are expressed, we go into the roller coaster into a roller coaster ride with a character of the film. And different chemicals are actually released in our brain like dopamine, oxytocin, endorphins, all working together to make us feel what the main character in the story is actually feeling. We become emotionally involved and invested in the main character. The most impactful is when the change of the character is portrayed in the film, where they are evolving. There's like a personal transformation that's taking place. The third element is that it needs to be personal. When the story that we're trying to tell is memorable and impactful, there's a connection that's made between the storyteller and the audience. So it's important to be authentic in creating a story because it means that it comes from our heart. And that is the key to telling a story.
Now, storytelling is as old as time. Telling stories is a part of all of our lives. When we share stories, we're sharing stories when we talk about how we're doing, what happened on our weekends, what's going on in our workplace, what's happening with our family members, even stuff in our own personal lives, what we're interested in, our dreams and our experiences. We share our lives through story. And in our uniqueness, we perceive things differently as well. Two people can experience the same event and both walk out and share their story with a completely different perspective. For example, when I first met my wife, we both went separately to a nightclub. We didn't know each other at the time. She went with her friends and I went with mine. When she saw me, she made her way all the the way towards me and made the first move. Now, if you ask her, She would say that she saw a familiar face in me because we had known each other since we were kind of growing up. And she was just being friendly and just looking for someone to dance with. Same event, different versions. My narrative is that she found me incredibly attractive that night. And she just couldn't contain herself that she had to walk all the way across the dance floor to introduce herself. And I'm sticking by that. That's what happened. But her narrative is that she was just looking to have fun with someone and just dance the night away. But 14 years later, we've been married for almost 10 years, two kids. I'll let you be the judge of whose narrative is correct. See, our perspective and our point of view is the narrative in which we tell our stories. A narrative is an account of the events that tell a story. And in this case, all that we have been through up until this point shapes the narrative that exists in our individual lives. We all have a narrative that's embedded deep within our story. A narrative that has been shaped by what has transpired in our lives. Our narrative is unique to us. It's how we view and perceive the world around us. And our narrative is very influential in the way that we interact and engage in our lives, especially with the people around us. But herein lies the problem. We come up against this kind of like wall. And what happens is the problem that lies is that when we allow our narratives to prevent us from receiving the new life that Jesus promises. So here's a story to kind of help illustrate what I'm talking about. St. Augustine, he's, called, he's referred to as the doctor of the church for all of his contributions to the Christian faith. This man wasn't always fully devoted to Jesus as we might assume for someone whose contributions have influenced millions of people across the world. See, St. Augustine grew up wanting nothing to do with the Christian faith. He was smart from such a young age. He studied philosophy and actually became a very well-known speaker. His desire to go against the Christian faith, the faith of his mother, took him to study at some of the top places of his time, to study under some of the most influential people of the time as well. And at the age of 25, he actually had a conversion into Christianity on a trip to Rome, the center of all great thinkers, philosophers, and also the, the epicenter of, um, of, of, it was just like party central. But it was there 
where he had an encounter with God. And his conversion wasn't an instantaneous miracle like many of us might think. There was actually struggles along the way. Augustine experimented with very many different philosophies and ways of living, ultimately leading him to a point where he believed uh, intellectually that Christianity was correct. The rest of him, however, was not willing to convert. He struggled for nine years until he was about 34 years old with bringing his moral life to align with the faith that he thought and he knew was to be true. It's during this time where his most infamous prayer actually showed the struggle that was going on between his heart. He says, Lord, make me a good and chaste Christian. In other words, make me a good person, a a good Christian with self-control, but not yet. You see, Augustine's struggle in his early years of faith is a struggle that exists in all of our hearts. See, accepting the new life that Jesus offers can be very difficult and challenging when we're still clinging on to the old ways of our lives. The old ways of our lives have a deep influence in the narrative that exists in us. You see, our hearts have this great ability to attach and cling on to things of the past and from the past. And these attachments become cemented and they influence what we do now. You see, our sinful behavior is an example of this. The reason why we do certain things is because there's a narrative that's deeply engraved and is deeply embedded in guilt, shame, and anxiety. And an example of this can be shown in some of our sinful behavior. See, sometimes the reason why it can be so hard to let go of a particular sin is because there's an attachment that exists. That stems deep, deep, deep down from a hurt. So the narrative keeps playing this voice in the back of our heads, kind of whispering to us that we're unworthy, that we're unlovable, that this loneliness, this deep loneliness will never be satisfied. And it just becomes reinforced by what we do, by our sinful behavior. So what was once a negative thought has now become the internal soundtrack of our hearts. And it influences everything that we do and how we interact in this world. See, this voice, this narrative prevents us from receiving the new life that Jesus offers. And it actually makes us feel like attaining it or or becoming holy or becoming the, the, the person that Christ calls us to be is impossible. That this is only something that's deemed and and something that's meant for the chosen few. So we dismiss it. And we just become complacent with what we have. And who we are. And who we've become. See, the failure that comes from the dreams, the desires that didn't come to pass, also make us cling on to the past. And we begin to just fantasize and daydream of what could have been. We reminisce on the past. We, when part of us, like, live in the past. And it makes us actually fearful and it creates a mistrust in the new life that Jesus has to offer. Because it looks foreign, it, it feels unknown, it feels unsafe. So we retreat and we just keep living from things in the past. 
a while back, I was listening to a, a radio station and they shared a story that I, I, I believe helps kind of illustrate this point of the narratives that exist in us from the things that we cling on to from our past. And, and the story goes like this. There's a couple that had been married for 10 years. And on one particular morning, as the wife was getting ready to take on the day, she looked and stared at the reflection in the mirror a little longer than usual. She noticed that her hair was starting to show some gray coloring. So she thought to herself, hmm, getting a little older and my youth seems to be behind me. The skin on her face was beginning to show more wrinkles than before. So she thought to herself that her physical beauty was slipping away. She noticed some bags underneath her eyes. And from the long hours of work, from all of her effort and energy of being a mother and trying to be a wife among the other roles and responsibility that she carried, she was beginning to see and realize that she didn't have the energy that she once used to. And lastly, she noticed that after having a few children, she had gained some extra weight. And it wasn't coming off. And it was just a reminder that she wasn't as active physically as she used to be. After this, she walks away. Her husband goes into the bathroom and looks at himself in the mirror as well. Except he doesn't spend nearly as much time as his wife. But he also makes some observations about himself. When he looks at the gray hairs, he thinks to himself that the gray hair actually adds more character. It makes him look a little bit more distinct. And when he looks at his face, he doesn't see the wrinkles. He just thinks that now his face shows the wisdom that actually lies beneath. And when he looks at his body, he doesn't think he's overweight. He just believes that he's a little bit out of shape. And all he needs is a few days to just go out and start working out and everything will be as it needs to be. These two people have lived together for at least 10 years. They have a family together. Life events have happened to them. Yet on this particular morning, the wife sees herself with critical eyes comparing to herself to what once was. The husband is a little bit more in denial, a little bit more blinded of his present, yet still hangs on to the image of his past. There are things from our past that influence how we view and interact in this world. Our narratives can lead us to romanticize the past and look back at it with nostalgia. On the other hand, when we look back, there can be some painful events some failures, that the narrative that we live with is riddled with shame, guilt, and anxiety. And still, we cling on to it. We have a hard time letting go. But in order for us to receive the new life that Jesus promises, we need to put to death the old ways from our old life. Look at Jesus' words in John 12, verse 24. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. This week, we start Holy Week. 
a week of processions leading up to Calvary. Easter is not the end of our Christian story. It's actually the beginning. But in order for there to be resurrection, there needs to be a death and a burial. For us, for you and for me, in order for us to receive the new life that Jesus offers through his resurrection, we have to be willing to put to death the old ways of our old lives. We need to be able to know what the old ways of our lives are. There needs to be awareness. And we need to lean on Jesus to, to get the strength to lay them down and allow those parts to die. Because when we're able to let them go, part of the transformation is that we're able to be blessed by them. And that blessing allows us to step into the new life that is promised in and through Jesus Christ. See, if the Christmas season, Advent, is an anticipation of the birth of our Savior, then Lent, along with Holy Week, is a time of preparation for the price that must be paid for our salvation. See, Holy Week is the preparation for the death and the burial that need to take place in order, in, in order for there to be a resurrection on Sunday. So what in our lives needs to be put to death, buried, so that we can receive the new life that Jesus offers us every single day? I want us to take a look at an account that took place in the life of Jesus that illustrates this need for us to bring to death and burial our old lives so that we can receive the new life that comes from the resurrection on Easter. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, turn to John chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was. The one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha serving them and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Then one of the, his disciples, Judas, who was about to betray him, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. And then Jesus answered, hey, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. The anointing at Bethany is an account in the life of Jesus that is recorded in three Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and John. The dinner and the anointing all happen in, three, in the three Gospels. But there are two facts that are told in the Gospel of John that are not told in the other two Gospels. See, in the first two Gospels, it's said that the dinner is actually being held in the house of Simon, the leper. And that the woman who, did, who does the anointing, she actually remains 
nameless. So let's take a look at the difference um, and why it's so significant in, in John's account. The first difference is that John's account says that it's in the home of Lazarus where the dinner is taking place. Now, Lazarus is a dear friend of Jesus, and he's a man who he had raised from the dead. So let's go back to John 11, where actually this event takes place. And I want us to just kind of get a recap, if you're familiar with the story, and if this is the first time you hear it, just kind of want to um, bring it to light. So John chapter 11, Martha, Lazarus' sister, comes to meet Jesus to let him know that, hey, the one that you love is sick. Like your best friend, this guy that you say that you love, he's sick, he's dying. And when Jesus hears this news, he doesn't freak out. Like he doesn't say, okay, I'm going. Jesus actually calmly decides to extend his stay where he was. He's like, you know what? There's no rush. I'm going to hang out here and continue to just do what I've been doing for an extra couple days. And then we'll go back. We'll go back to Judea to see him. And then his disciples plead with him. No, 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 we can't go back. Because that's where the Jews had tried to previously stone us. And then Jesus makes this remark. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But come on, let's go wake him up. His disciples thought that he was actually talking about like a physical sleep. And then they stepped in and told him, no, no, Jesus, you have it all wrong. He actually died. Don't you find that interesting? That the way that Jesus describes the state of Lazarus is not one of death, but of sleeping? I think that's fascinating. Jesus actually had an almost similar response to the mother whose daughter had died in a previous encounter. See, Jesus had also um, brought a, a little girl back to life. So when he goes into the room, the room is crowded. And then Jesus says to the mother, hey, what's up? What's up with all the noise? Like, what's up with all the commotion? The girl is not dead. She's sleeping. Both accounts of a resurrection, Jesus says that they're both sleeping. And I love the insight by Catholic priest um, Ronald Rollheiser saying that Lazarus and this little girl were both woken up from their sleep. Even though the Bible says resurrected, what actually transpired was that both of these lives were actually resuscitated. See, a, a resuscitation means that their lives were restored to their former selves. Because in this depiction, it was they were both having a physical sickness that made them clinically dead. And Jesus was able to resuscitate them. So after reading both accounts, we actually see that they both kind of end stating that they both got up and walked back. They walked back to their old life because that was what was restored. They were, able to, they were able to walk back to what they knew, their relationships, their loved ones, their routines, etc. I know this might be a little confusing, but let's remember why this happens, why it's a resuscitation and not a resurrection. And the reason is, is because the resurrection that leads to new life wasn't available yet. Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. The resuscitation of the old life is what Augustine wrestled with for seven years 
after accepting God in his life. You see, he had accepted Jesus into his life, but what he wanted was for Jesus to make his old life better. See, the narrative in his life wanted Jesus to improve the life that he had been living. See, Augustine was clinging on to the old ways of his old life. He wasn't ready. He wasn't willing to put to death those old ways, those old patterns. But most importantly, those desires that made him believe that he could have the best of both worlds. And herein like, lies the brokenness of our human condition. How many of us don't, like, we, we, we scratch our heads, we bang our heads against the wall, we ask God, why? Why? Why, God, won't you answer this? Why, God, won't you do this? What's happening? I don't get it. I've given you this. I've given you that. Because deep down, what we're asking God and Jesus to do is to make our old life better. Because we're still clinging on to the narrative of our old ways, of our old lives. That's why there's, I believe there's a misalignment. Jesus is asking us, we need to be able to let that go so that we can receive something better. And I think that's a, I know this sounds kind of weird, but that's like, I'm glad that God doesn't answer some of my prayers because some of my prayers personally are to make my old life better. And I just wonder if God is asking me to let that go so that he can lead me into something new. And here's the second difference that's noted in John's account. The woman that does the anointing in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark is nameless. But John gives her a name and her name is Mary. And a lot of biblical scholars have all come to agreement that this is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene does the anointing of Jesus. Now, if you're not familiar with her story, she is a woman whose past was of a person with shades of darkness. She was full of shame, full of, she wasn't worthy. She wasn't even like, socially, culturally, she wasn't meant to be acknowledged, let alone respected. She was a woman whose interior na narrative was the same as the exterior narrative that existed in her life. Yet it's her who decides to put her old life to death and walks into the room and her heart fixed on Jesus and anoints him. It's fascinating. She had come into contact with Jesus before. She had shared meals with him. She had seen miracles. Jesus had talked to her. But part of me thinks that she was still holding on to the old narrative of her life. And it wasn't until this moment where she says, I'm enough. I'm letting it go. The washing of the feet was actually also deemed as a despicable task. Only, only a slave was able to perform such an act. 
Now, this moment is significant because this action is a display of the difficulty and at times the extremity of what it takes to put our old ways of our old life to death. Putting our old ways and our old life to death can be extremely difficult because of those attachments that exist of our heart. Mary, a woman with a colorful past while performing what was viewed as a low task, not only did she feel the weight of her own narrative that was filled with guilt and shame, but she also felt the weight of the shame and the guilt that was being projected onto her by the narratives of everyone at that table and everyone at that room. We can even hear it in the words of Judas, one of the 12, shaming her by saying, man, you could have done something way better, more generous by selling that perfume and giving it to the poor than what you just did right now. See, the perfume was worth a year's in salary. But the perfume was more than just a cosmetic product. It was a symbol of her value and her worth. What Mary had been doing all her life was that she was covering up her hurts, her failures, her unmet needs, her entire life by these adulterous rendezvous. She was trying to find fulfillment. She was trying to find wholeness, forgiveness, I mean, you name it, healing in the arms of men. But in this moment, she was giving it all up. She was letting it all go and choosing to place her trust at the feet of Jesus. The beauty of this moment, we can't miss That Mary's action is a part of a bigger picture. A lot of times we focus on her action, which she was doing, the anointing, the breaking, the, the surrender, if you will. And it's great. It's huge. But it's still a small part of a bigger picture. Because the death of her old life becomes the preparation for the suffering that will lead to the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. That is the bigger picture. So in closing, the anointing that takes place is a ritual that was always reserved and was always performed, that was always done to those that were already dead. So what Mary was doing, this anointing was like unthinkable. Not only was it a a lowly act, people were like, This is crazy. What are you doing? Like, why would you even do this? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Because back then, kind of like, think of it like mummification. It's it's a ritualistic process of removing, storing, cleaning a body after death so that the decaying process isn't foul and the bodies can actually be preserved better. So why was Mary doing this? Like, it just logically just didn't make any sense. It it, it It was crazy. But she anoints Jesus, and this anointing, we can draw a parallel to the anointing that King David um, had when Samuel 
anointed him with oil. And it was symbolizing that he was God's chosen king. So this anointing, this anointing, what it does is it, it anoints Jesus as king as well. So this anointing sets up Jesus for his triumphant entrance into Jerusalem as a king on Palm Sunday. But it also prepares him to die as a king a week later, less than a week later. Jesus' earthly body was being prepared for what was to come. His physical body needed to bleed. It needed to die because it carried with it all of the expectations that people have placed on him. But most importantly, it was going to be carrying the weight of the world. It was going to be carrying the sin of all of us. The new life that Jesus offers is not a restoration of our old lives. It's a gift. It's the gift of a new life that can only be discovered when we're willing to put to death and bury our old ways. Then we can truly have the resurrection life. Because the resurrection life does not happen just once in our lives. Salvation is a gift and it's important. It's essential. But Jesus always talked about that we must suffer many deaths. Because he understands how fragile our human heart is and how many attachments can exist in our hearts. And putting to death those attachments and reattaching them back to God is what the new life is about. It's the spiritual new life. We must be willing to slow down enough to sit still and allow the Spirit of God to search our hearts and show us where these attachments lie. Where are, what's the genesis of them? Where did this happen? Where, where did we begin to, to move like one degree over from originals, from God's original design of our lives? What are our hearts clinging to that's not Jesus? Because that is where healing happens. That is where transformation occurs. And that is where we receive the gift of a new life. So what is Jesus inviting you to today? What needs to be put to death in your life? What would it look like for us this week to go through the preparation and place ourselves at the feet of Jesus like Mary and let go. Begin to let go so that come this Easter we can receive the resurrection, the new life that's being offered to us every single day of our lives. What is Jesus inviting you to today? What would happen if we poured ourselves out to him and put to death and bury our old lives so that we can receive the new life that comes from the resurrection? What is Jesus inviting you to today? Heavenly Father, just want to thank you so much for your love.
your constant pursuit of us. Your love goes beyond words. It goes beyond explanation. It goes beyond our understanding. You took it upon yourself to give the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus so that we may have a relationship with you, so that we may be able to come back to you and experience you. So Lord, I pray a blessing of your spirit, an outpour of your spirit to wherever we're at. That this Easter, Lord, more people come to know you and experience the love that you have because of what Jesus did on the cross. All across the world, Lord. That people would experience who you are by looking at the cross. Lord, that we would see how valuable we are because you paid the ultimate price so that we can experience your love from the cross. So Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. Amen.